may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday, and I'm glad to get your calls. And it is, again, as it has been many of these recent days, a very target-rich environment. You got the Tucker Carlson interview of Vladimir Putin, which has now been confirmed by Russia. And, of course, you got everybody in the liberal media saying, well, then Tucker Carlson's an enemy of America. He's an ally of Putin. I, I don't think so. And I'll have a couple of thoughts for you on that. Does it sound like justice when Joe Biden is investigated for his own, by his own admission, stealing classified documents for the better part of half a century? Remember that Joe Biden, in a television interview some time ago, admitted that he was taking home classified documents to his home back when he was a U.S. senator in the 1970s. We've run the soundbite of him admitting to that. Now, that's a criminal act. And yet the end of the report, and I'll give you some details on it in a moment, uh, comes to the conclusion nobody should be charged. Now, if you didn't think there was a double standard of justice in America, consider that Donald Trump, as president, had the authority to declassify documents, had the authority to take them home, and in the case of a being a former president, had the authority to hang on to a lot of those documents, and there was a dispute about whether or not he had returned the ones that had to be returned. That dispute still has not been settled. I know there are people who call this show all the time and say, well, you know, uh, Trump took documents he wasn't allowed to take. Really? How did you come to that conclusion? Because even the courts haven't decided that yet. But when Donald Trump has documents and they're safely stored, not only stored behind locked doors, but under the protection of the Secret Service, whereas Joe Biden was taking documents as a senator, he had no authority to do it. Even as a vice president, he had limited authority to take classified documents without a sign off by his boss, the great B. Hossein Obama. And yet he admits he took them. And where did he store them? In a cardboard box in the garage by his Corvette or at the UPenn Center, the one that was funded by the Chinese communists, to the point where he had documents floating around all over the place that even he didn't know where they were. And what was the conclusion at the end of all that? The Justice Department is preparing to release a special counsel report in coming days that is critical of President Biden and his aides for mishandling classified documents in Biden's private home and former office. But prosecutors, no kidding, out of the Merrick Garland Justice Department, do not plan to pursue criminal charges in the case. What a surprise. I'm shocked, folks. Shocked, I tell you, that Joe Biden is going to face nothing. So you've got Donald Trump charged with dozens of criminal acts for taking classified documents he had a right to take. You've got Joe Biden, who stole documents for half a century back to the early 1970s, and he confessed to doing exactly that. And at the end of the day, what happens when uh, the uh, the special investigator, uh, Mr. Herr, went out to investigate on behalf of Merrick Garland, the attorney general, 
He comes back and says, well, yeah, we're going to be critical of Biden. We'll we'll uh, wag our finger at him real hard. We might even slap him on the hand or write something critical in a report, but charge him with a crime. I mean, this is Joe Biden. He's the capo of the Biden crime family. He's been making tens of millions of dollars for the Biden crime family. And, uh, you know, no, we're not going to charge him with a crime. Perish the thought. It ain't going to happen. In any case, I want to get to your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer and you disagree with my point of view, we make you more than welcome. In fact, yesterday, we had a record number of naysayers call the show on that subject of the mother in Michigan convicted of involuntary manslaughter in the killings done by her teenage son because she bought him the gun. And she didn't do the things any parent ought to have done for that kid. I'm not excusing his actions or diminishing them one little bit. But she was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. Her husband goes on trial next month. We'll find out what happens to him. She may be looking at decades in prison. And that lit a lot of people up. Amazingly enough, people who said, well, you know, she shouldn't have been charged with any kind of crime. Are you kidding me? I mean, all you gun control nuts out there who say you've got to have rules. I'll tell you what. If you put a gun in the hands of a child, then you have to take some of the responsibility for what that child does with that gun. And I know that like a lot of you, I've got kids in my family, including my beloved granddaughter. And has she handled a gun yet? No. Will she someday? Absolutely. Her father will make sure of that. Her mother will make sure of that. Uh, and I will make sure of that with her parents' permission. But uh, will she be Handling that gun uh, unsupervised? Will she be handed a gun and told, you take care of it? I'm not going to worry about locking up. No, that ain't going to happen either. And then we've got our poll on X, and this has to do with Carlson, who managed to land an interview with Vladimir Putin. Now, i got to tell you something. I may have a different view of this than some of you do. I've had people ask over the years, is there anybody you wouldn't interview because they're so, so absolutely evil? And my answer to that is no. I'd interview any of those people. Usually I find that the more I might dislike who a person is and what that person has done, the more I want to interview them because usually those people, when when they sit down to talk to you and you record it on video and audio tape and then you put it in front of the public, they know why that person is evil. I mean, I've interviewed serial killers. I've interviewed some really nasty folks at one point, decades ago. Remember the Westboro Baptist Church? I mean, I'm a Christian, but those people are not Christians. People who come out and condemn America, condemn our members in, in uniform, condemn our military and everything else, all supposedly in the name of Jesus Christ. No, that doesn't work for me. But uh, did I talk to members of the Phelps family on the program? As a reporter, you shouldn't only want to talk to the people who agree with you. You know, like the folks at MSNBC and CNN do. You should want to talk to the people you disagree with. And in fact, if you're a really good interviewer, the audience won't even know whether you agree or disagree. They'll just know that you ask the questions they would ask if they were sitting in your seat. So Tucker Carlson lands an interview with Vladimir Putin. Congratulations to him. I think that's a good thing. But boy, you should have seen the left-wing media absolutely spin right off like a top. I mean, it was insane the way the folks at CNN and MSNBC reacted. Because I can guarantee you that if CNN had landed an interview with Putin, they would have been trumpeting it from the rooftops. They would have been saying, look what we got. We got this interview. And I'll tell you what, 
At the end of the day, I think Carlson's a good interview. I think he'll ask good questions. And apparently, he's asked for an interview with Zelensky as well. And can you imagine matching up the answers in those two interviews? He's managed to do something. The liberal media in America is jealous of what he accomplished. I'm not jealous. I I simply go for the same kind of interviews he does. Good for him. But what's happened is the liberal media is absolutely nuts. So our question is, is Tucker Carlson selling out America by doing an interview with Vladimir Putin? I won't go as far as CNN, which actually says, well, he's a supporter of Vladimir Putin. He's in Putin's pocket. You know what? That old Russia, Russia, Russia stuff, that went out with Hillary Clinton. It doesn't make any sense. It has no logic to it at all. So, is Carlson selling out America by doing an interview with a foreign head of state? Absolutely not. Brought to you by AMAC. Go to AMAC and join AMAC.us. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Back in a moment. the sound of freedom. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, Super Bowl is one of those gigantic events that happens every year, and it seems to get bigger and bigger every year, and of course, more expensive every single year. So I thought we'd talk about it with Pete Earle, our friend who's an economist with the American Institute for Economic Research. Pete, welcome back. Great to be here, Lars. How's everything? The number, everything is great. But it's not so good that I can actually afford a ticket to go to the Super Bowl. Oh. And, I, and, and when some of the players who make millions of dollars say, ah, we don't even have enough money to afford one of those suites, and what are they, three million bucks a pop? Yeah, I mean, so you know, prices to attend the Super Bowl have always been uh, costly, of course. But this year, I mean, they've taken a turn for the surreal. Uh, you have, the average tickets are going for ten grand a pop. And some of the particularly choice seats have gone for a seat this is, not even a box, over $100,000. Hotel rooms, of course, are going to be up. The, those that usually go for about 100 bucks on the strip or, on the, on, or off strip are now $1,500 for the weekend. You have airline costs up. So, I mean, this is the uh, – and, and this is inflation. This, is, this isn't just demand. I mean, this is inflation because it's happening all across, you know, the prices in that area. It's, it's really astounding to see. Well, let me ask you this, Pete, as an economist, uh, but but put on your, your regular person hat, too. Is that a bad thing? Or, or should we just say, God bless capitalism? Because, Pete, every time somebody complains about stuff being too expensive or they're making too much of a markup, I say, what about those folks who put you know, probably an eight cents worth of coffee and a little bit of milk in a paper cup and sell it for five dollars? Uh, I think they're they're making a healthy markup as well, aren't they? Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's this, uh, this, it, you, you raise a good point, and I have to say that it's good phenomenologically to see, you know, this really sort of underscores what we've seen for the last few years, but I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like somebody's going to die if they don't go to the Super Bowl, so it's no. not, you know, this, this is a luxury issue, and yeah, I mean, of course, it's not that bad of a thing, but I mean, again, it's emblematic of what's happening, and that's why I wrote the article to talk about even the, the fact that even staying home, you're going to get hit over the head in terms of the prices of, uh, of, of things people usually consume at Super Bowl parties and while they're watching the Super Bowl. Well, and usually, usually, Pete, we see a lot of talk about how much the commercials are. Did you get into the commercial costs? That what does it cost for a company to get thirty seconds in the middle of the Super Bowl? 
I did not, but I remember hearing that one particular one-minute commercial cost $3 million. So I'm not wow. sure that's much higher than the previous years, but it is a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, at any rate. I mean, but, but at the end of the day, is is it a bad thing? If you've got an event, and I can't remember the last number I saw for, att- not attendance, but for viewership of the Super yeah. Bowl, and especially now mm-hmm. that people can not just watch it on television, but stream it almost anywhere in the world, it's got to be off the charts. Yeah, I mean, the annual uh, the annual viewership uh, of the Super Bowl is over 100, 110 million people. And, you know, what we would hope, I mean, so again, you know, this is a luxury item. Going to the Super Bowl is, uh, is something that, you know, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a bobble. It's something you do, and it's a great experience. But, you know, if it were something more dire, what we would hope is that those costs, those prices rather, you know, uh, $10,000 for a regular seat, $100,000 would lead someone to say, hey, we need to sell a lot more seats because if we sell more seats, we can get more people in there and prices will fall as well. So that's usually what happens. That's how prices sort of ration. When prices of one thing goes up, people shift to a complement or something else and then the prices come back down. But I mean, for this kind of thing, I mean, it's probably not a bad thing for the uh, NFL and for the teams and for the Allegiant uh, Stadium, I believe it's called, uh, for them to just have those prices going up because I don't think their cost of running it are getting that much more expensive. So I think they're getting mostly profit out of it, which, hey, good for them, right? Yeah, good for them. Well, and here's the other thing. How how big can you make a stadium? What I, I don't know what the biggest exactly. stadium in, I'm, in America is, but is it 100,000 yet? Can, can you make a stadium that would seat 200,000 for events like this? And maybe then we could get the nosebleed seats down to four or five hundred dollars yeah i mean so that's just it they're not going to expand capacity to incorporate you know another uh 30 or 50 or 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 two million people so yeah i mean it's going to be the kind of thing where uh what will eventually change direction will be if the prices raise rise to a point where people stop going but i think that uh you know the very fact that Seats are selling for $10,000 shows that uh, people have not reached their reservation price and they're willing to pay it. 65,000 people are willing to pay $10,000 up to what? You know, $3 million for a certain box seat and $107,000 for really prime seats? I mean, they're filling it up, so obviously people are willing to pay that. Well, and in fact, when they say that I think those suites will seat, it might be 30 people that they can put in, and these are the big boxes, you know, that that they have that have, you know, and by the way, I've never, I've never been able to rent one of those. I have gone to one or two <laughs> events at one of those, and they, they, you have to buy the food from the venue. You have to buy the the, the drink service from the venue. You got to pay it, beyond the three million. You got to pay. But I was just thinking, at a hundred thousand a seat for the better seats, you could get twenty, thirty people together and and take a suite out instead of thirty individual seats at one hundred and seven thousand dollars a piece. Yeah, I'd like to see what kind of a seat goes for $107,000. I'm guessing it's, you know, first row on the 50-yard line, which actually might not be that great if you have to look over people's heads. But, uh, you know, I assume that the uh, the buyers are uh, are savvy enough to know that. And, uh, you know, I wish them luck. I hope they have a great experience and take a lot of pictures. <laughs> you know, you just reminded me, Pete, a long time ago I worked in Spokane, Washington, and they had a great minor league hockey team. And because of my coworkers, I went to a couple of games, and I fell in love with the game. I thought it was great. But they said the best seats are right there down down by the side of the ice. And I said, I've sat down there, and all you see is people zooming by. We had terrible seat as reporters. If we went to cover it, they kind of had a box that was not glued, but it was nailed to the ceiling of the venue. And I remember looking down thinking, I can see the whole game. I can see how the match is, is lining up because I can see where everybody's going. This is the best seat in the house. And it was considered the sort of 
afterthought of let's nail a, a plywood box to the ceiling and tell the reporters if you want to watch it, go up there and watch it. I thought it was the best seat in the house. Yeah, I'm a very simple guy, and I pay uh, $3 to see the local minor league team, and I don't even sit in the bleachers. I sit by the side and I eat a fifty hot dog. So that's, my, uh, that's how I splurge in the summertime. Now, you know what I want you, an economist like you to take a look at? Just, I mean, I don't know if you want to take on this assignment, but with sure the, the NFL saying we're going to play two national anthems, the Star Spangled Banner and the Black National Anthem, and I don't know if you know how much that's getting under people's, well, no pun intended, under their skin, to say there aren't two national anthems. We're one country, one people, and they're really bothered by this. And all the other woke stuff that I kind of expect to come out of this, are they going to take this really big cash cow of the Super Bowl and they're going to ruin it, the NFL is going to ruin it, by bringing in other elements because of politics and, and take, take some of the luster off the event? Yeah, I guess I guess that sort of thing would have to bear out over a few years. But um, so far, I think a lot of people are expecting that, and they're still paying $10,000 a seat. So we may have our preliminary uh, response in right now. Yeah, and, and it, it'll be interesting. And then, of course, there's the Taylor Swift effect. Is there a way of putting metrics on that? Uh, <laughs> probably just uh, count the complaints on uh, Twitter or something. I don't know. <laughs> I think I, I, I don't my, really understand why people are upset about it, but I, it is. I don't. I, I don't either. But uh, Pete, yeah. I, 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 I got to tell you this. My mention of her just now. I think you can check with my producers. Maybe the first time I've mentioned her in the last twelve months. <laughs> And and I don't routinely spend a lot of time talking about Taylor Swift or her romances or or anything else that she's doing. No, I mean I couldn't name a song by her. I I, I only learned about her because she was dating Kelsey, Kelsey and you know all this stuff. So uh, I'm not an expert by any means. No, and and I guess you can't really calculate the economics of that. Pete, thank very thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. That's Pete Earle with the American Institute for Economic Research about Super Bowl. Let's go to Don. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today on a Wednesday? Hi there. Uh, first of all, it's really an honor to speak with you, sir. I've listened to you often for several years mm-hmm. in your area. Thank you. And uh, I just want to bring up something that I I hardly ever hear anybody mention. That's the fact that I think the biggest single enemy this country faces, as well as our foreign enemies, is Because, you know, they take everything and turn it around. And you go back and you listen to Walter Cronkite say, uh, oh, uh, so you're saying the liberal the liberal media is the big enemy of the American people. The problem is they're also their own worst enemy because they are degrading and downsizing their influence and their audience every time they open their mouths. So just wait a while. Give them enough rope, they'll hang themselves. Don, thanks so much. I appreciate the call. Back in just a moment. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. The Lars Larson Show. Happy kids heal faster. Be honest. You're listening because you like what you hear, right? 
Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you on board. If you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go first. In a moment, i got to tell you about woke kindergarten and a terrible experiment they've been doing in the San Francisco Bay Area. Thank God I don't live there. Uh, they are doing a real job on a bunch of tiny kids uh, when it comes to education. But first, to your calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Kyle, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Thank you. So uh, two things briefly on my mind. First of all, I'm really proud of uh, Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who steadfastly uh, opposed the Senate and uh, Biden and all the rhino, neocon, what's called uh, Cox, C-U-C-K, like uh, Republicans in name yep. only. They only yep. go for the warmongering. I think he should say, has, have a standalone bill just to secure the border, the same border that the Republicans and the Democrats have uh, refused to, uh, you know, support uh, under Trump, you know, $10 billion. And, you know, I'm glad that he does it. Uh, I, I'm against foreign uh, never-ending wars. I think we should secure the border. It doesn't even take a—all you got to do is uh, pass a regulation and enforce uh, the existing laws. So Biden is just, you know, trying to push him, but— I'm glad that he's not, and I'm proud that he's not yielding to the pressure. You well, know, you're I'm right. Just, you're right that under Trump, he had a Republican House and Senate, and he and the the House and Senate could have delivered to the president funding for the wall. And if he'd got it, I think they would have had the wall done by the end of Trump's first four years, and we'd be in an entirely different situation. I mean, it wouldn't be that wouldn't be that Biden wouldn't figure out a way to get illegals across that border. But imagine how much more transparent it would have to be, how much more obvious it would have to be if you had a, a border barrier ac- across most of that. Most of this is simply Biden's people allowing people to come in illegally. But if you had an actual barrier there, uh, it would have changed the whole equation. But as far as Mike Johnson goes, you know, Kyle, we should all be asking, if you think that Ukraine is worth supporting, Put it in a standalone bill and see if you get a majority right. of votes from the people's representatives. If you think Israel or Taiwan are worth supporting, put those in standalone bills. The very fact that they have to sell them as a package and say, well, we got a bill that has Taiwan, it has Israel, it has Ukraine in it, and they wanted to put the border in as well. And you say, hold on, all you're trying to do is is, is develop a, you know, it's a camel designed by a committee, is a, a, a A a camel is a horse designed by a committee where you have the committee all throw in, well, this is the stuff I want, and that's the stuff he wants. And by the time you're all done, you've got this thing all layered up. And then you say, everybody who wants Israel support has to vote for it. Everybody who wants the border closed has to vote for it. And and all you're doing is getting this conglomeration. And you're admitting out loud that if you had to have standalone votes on each of those issues – they would probably all go down. And so what is that telling you? The people's representatives would say no. If you voted on it as discrete items, they will say yes only if you jam it all in together. What a joke. Exactly, and that's, exactly. And that's why, why we, we could close the border, and that's my priority. And all we do is like give our money to, like, he wants to give $60 billion to Ukraine, which is not even our ally, whereas Israel, which is our ally, just like NATO, is only going to get $11 billion plus. All you got to do is close the border first, and I'm pretty sure that if, if you do it, 
then uh, both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate would say, you know what, now that we secure the border, which is what we care foremost as an American first, then, uh, you know, but I'm, uh, just as a closing note, I'm very glad that uh, Tucker Carlson went to Moscow to uh, interview Putin so that the world would come out. I mean, we, we only get getting one side of the story. I mean, you may agree or not agree, uh, disagree with Tucker, but he got his First Amendment right, freedom of the press. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, our MAGA people, Make America Great Again people, would also get the stuff, uh, our side of the story, not all the stuff that the neocon and the rhinos are just jamming us, including Fox News, which since Tucker got fired is only full of uh, Republican name only. So rhinos. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah, because, because, Kyle, I've never thought it was a bad idea to put an interview with somebody on whatever, whether you agree with that side or not, put the interview out in front. Because the minute you tell me you can only persuade me of your position if you won't let me hear the other side, that's not very American to begin with. You know, because because you're saying, I only want to hear one side. And believe me, Kyle, there are liberal naysayers who call this show all the time, and we put them on. And uh, and they'll raise an objection or they'll raise an argument. And I'll say, what about this? Well, I didn't know about that. I said, no, you didn't know about it because your your argument only works if you ignore what the other side has to say. You have to pay it. And in fact, my best double check on any of my positions, I'll read the left. You know, I'm usually I'm on the right. And uh, but I'll read a lefty's position on something and I'll say, okay. Uh, on an issue, whatever the issue happens to be. It could be energy, it could be education. And I'll say, now, how would I answer those those issues that that person has raised? And if I don't have a good answer to that question, then I haven't done my job and I have to go back and do more homework. Let me tell you about what's happening in San Francisco. So you've got this one school that is doing abysmally bad for the kids in it, Glassbrook Elementary. And they said, we're going to improve the school. They hire a for-profit company to push what's called woke kindergarten to train the teachers. And uh, I want you to listen to one of these teachers, the founder of woke kindergarten, to give you an idea of what they're all about. Yes, everyone, the rumors are true. I am anti-Israel. I am pro-Palestine. And I am 100% Ten toes down, anti-Israel. I believe Israel has no right to exist. I believe the United States has no right to exist. I believe every settler colony who has committed genocide against native peoples, against indigenous people, has no right to exist. I believe in a free Palestine from the river to the sea. I believe one day Palestine will be free. Is this news to anybody? White supremacy destroys for the sake of destruction abolition destroys for the sake of creation we are not the same i have an unwavering respect for children an unwavering love and care and compassion for children a commitment to children and to their freedom to their learning to their lives to sustaining their lives all are the demons y'all are the villains we've been trying to end y'all get free of y'all now, I got to tell you something. That's the founder of Woke Kindergarten. So they bring them in to this Glassbrook Elementary in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the San Francisco Chronicle did a great job of covering this. They spent two years there 
and a quarter of a million dollars saying they were going to improve education. Guess what happened? Test scores dropped by 4% in the last two years. And then at the end of that, get this, 12% of the students at Glassbrook Elementary School can read at their grade level. 12%. That means 88% are failing. 4% of the kids are proficient in math at their grade level. That means 96% are not. Woke kindergarten has failed these kids miserably. The lefty you just heard made a quarter of a million dollars, and San Francisco gets to feel good about itself. That's the kind of joke that is being pushed on kids in far too many places in America. Woke kindergarten, where you're going to indoctrinate kids to believe that the United States has no right to exist, uh, that Israel has no right to exist, that the uh, white supremacy is a real thing. This is what's being pushed on your kids. It is time to get them out of the failing government-run schools. Back in just a moment, the D.C.-controlled District Court of Appeal says President Trump does not have presidential immunity. Is the Supreme Court likely to intervene? We're going to talk about that coming up next. president of legal affairs for pacific legal foundation hey jim i got a stack of questions for you welcome back uh, good to be back with you and i imagine you do have a lot of questions we have some of the biggest issues in decades before us now it, it really is so the supreme let's start with this tomorrow if i'm not incorrect about this the supreme court hears the arguments on whether or not in the name of democracy uh the democrats and the liberals can have donald trump's name removed from an election ballot uh, is I had a question from my, uh, my one of my producers who said, well, when are they going to decide on that? And I said, well, ordinarily you wait till about June for the Supreme Court to announce decisions. But I have a feeling they're going to come out with this one faster. What should we expect out of tomorrow's arguments, oral arguments before the SCOTUS? Well, the arguments are going to be long and hard, and they're going to be getting at four basic questions. First of all, does a state like Colorado have the ability even to keep somebody like former President Trump, off the ballot in the first place? Does the 14th Amendment, Section 3, give the states power to do that? That's an open question. Second question, is the president an officer as contemplated in that section of the Constitution, the 14th Amendment? Uh, There's a lot of question of whether or not he is an officer. We know he appoints officers, but is being in the office of the presidency make him an officer. That's really unknown. And there's tons of debate going back and forth between liberals and conservatives and even amongst conservatives about that. Second, the doctrine applies to the article 14th Amendment applies to uh, somebody who takes an oath to preserve, protect and excuse me, to support the Constitution. Right. But article two, section eight, the oath that the president takes is an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Is that a dis- difference? Does that difference make it, is, is that distinction matter? And finally, uh, did the president engage in insurrection or not? And if it, he did, who gets to decide that? Does a trial court in Colorado get to decide that he was engaged in insurrection? Or is this going to be a much larger issue? We have some other mechanism to determine that. Remember, nobody's charged President Trump or actually anybody else with insurrection. So 
it's a uh, huge set of open questions. Well, let me ask you about one of them. You didn't mention explicitly due process, but in the case of Colorado, there was no trial that determined that he was guilty of the crime of insurrection, which is a federal crime, and the charge would have been brought by the very political Merrick Garland and his DOJ, and they didn't bring it against Trump. So if he was never charged with insurrection, can the Colorado court, the Supreme Court of Colorado, decide, we've decided he's guilty, there is no need for trial, verdict first, uh, isn't that the way it goes in Alice Through the Looking Glass, verdict first sentence yeah, later? Ver- you know, verdict first judgment later. <laughs> judgment oh, yeah, later. So, Laura, that's, did that's they decide that? Fascinating question. It's a fascinating question of whether or not the Colorado Supreme Court can decide. Now, the, the Colorado trial courts made a finding in the Supreme Court of Colorado upheld that. But is this supposed to be a federal trial before a federal court? Who gets to decide insurrection? And you're right. What kind of process does a defendant like President Trump have? Remember, President Trump wasn't in court in Colorado defending himself against charges of insurrection. So, it's another huge open question. Now, the due process one is not a question that a lot of the pundits or a lot of the attorneys are talking about. It's not central to the briefing in the case so far, but it very well may come up in tomorrow's arguments. I think anything can come up, and I think we're going to have some surprises, things that are coming up that people aren't necessarily thinking about a lot today, and due process may be one of them. Now, I want to ask you about the timing question, because They hear the oral arguments. They've already been briefed on it. How quickly do they come out with a decision with it being as significant, it seems to be, in the middle of an election year? Is is this one one that comes back in a week or two, or do we have to wait till June? I think it's going to come back sooner, maybe not a week or two, because it's going to be a very uh, difficult decision to write. But certainly within a month is my guess. Because look what happened with Bush versus Gore, the election issue with President Bush and Al Gore many years ago, about 25 years ago. That came out within a week. Uh, This one will come out pretty quickly, but it's going to depend on what the split is on the court. If the court is eight to one or seven to two in one direction or the other direction, it'll probably come out quicker. But if we have one of these fractured opinions, four people here, three there, two there, so on and so forth, uh, it could be a lot longer. But I really think Chief Justice Roberts is going to want to avoid that kind of split decision. And I think most of the members of the court are, too. No matter which way they rule, they want it to be a firm opinion of a majority of the court. They don't want to have the court's integrity question as being people saying that they're just doing this politically. So well, and, and even for the, the three tried and true liberals on the court, aren't they going to look at this saying if we decide that any state can simply gin up a case and take n- candidate names of presidential candidates off the ballot, this is going to come back to bite us in the backside if we sign off on it. Isn't that going to be in Sotomayor, uh, Sotomayor's head and even Katenji Brown Jackson? Oh, it's going to be in everybody's head because we've seen tit for tat so often now coming up in all kinds of political questions dealing with who gets appointed to the Supreme Court and all kinds of things. So I guess you you can't help but think, hey, look, if we keep Trump off the ballot this way, well, what's to stop a state, say a southern or a red state, from keeping President Biden or, uh, say, President Gavin Newsom off the ballot sometime? No, that's very much the, the case. Okay, now the second question, and this one's already been decided, but the federal appeals court has said that uh, President Trump is not immune, does not have presidential immunity. 
Is the Supreme Court likely to take that one up and flip it over? I think the court is going to want to take that up because the language of the Court of Appeals was was very hurried and not very precise, and it left a lot of open questions. So the court probably really doesn't want to take the case. It just rather wash its hands and be done with it. But at the same time, you have all kinds of questions about presidential immunity. What is an official act of uh, the president, which is mostly immune, but not immune all the time? I mean, that's essentially what the court said. But what does that mean? Uh, There are uh, there's a language in there, the difference between discretionary and ministerial acts, that is, acts where the president is told to act in a particular way. And if he doesn't do that, he can be held liable. But if he's given discretion, say the number of troops that he's going to send to a particular place, he can't be liable for that. And these are just really, really difficult questions. And I think the court very well may want to take this one up because we, the president's not immune from this criminal prosecution, perhaps. But what about the next one? The next time somebody wants to go after a former president just as um, more no. political stunt. <laughs> not that this you're, one wasn't. You're, you're not thinking of the capo of the Biden crime family, are you? Because I think he ought to be. <laughs> I think he ought to be prosecuted as soon as possible. That's Jim Burling from Pacific Legal Foundation, and this is the Lars Larson Show. So check out our Instagram. The feed. Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails because we call this the best conversation in talk journalism. And it certainly is. Glad to have you with me. I got to talk to you in a moment about this. Why the left in America wants to ban safe tires that you and your family ride on in order to save the planet. And I'm not exaggerating one little bit. They want to make certain kinds of tires illegal to sell. And why? Because they say, well, those tires that really grip the road in the wintertime when it's wet or cold or icy or snowy, why they're bad for the planet. They reduce rolling uh, resistance or increase rolling resistance. They cause you to burn more fuel. And, of course, they wear out sooner because we, we, we have to have those tires made of very, very hard rubber that takes a long time to wear out. Of course, not very grippy either. So in wet weather, you might just slide around. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. First, welcome to the program. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you happen to be a naysayer, on this show, we have a quarter century long tradition. Naysayers go to the head of the line. I'll tell you some of the things we're going to talk about. Number one. 
How did Nikki Haley lose to none of the above in the Nevada Republican presidential primary? And by the way, they weren't even awarding delegates in the Nevada Republican presidential primary. They did that through the caucuses. So she ran. And Nevada is one of those states that offers, they don't call it none of the above. They say none of these candidates. So small difference, not really meaningful to anybody other than a lawyer. Um, but Nikki Haley lost by two to one to none of the above. Now, if you were Nikki Haley, would you still be running for president when you lose in a state election in which none of the above wins by two to one margin over you? Don't think so. Should former WWE superstar Tyler Rex, who stands in at six foot two inches tall and once weighed 280 pounds, should he be permitted to re-enter the ring as Gabby Tuft, a transgender wrestler. We'll get into that later this hour. Joe Biden's judicial nominee that has ties to one of the hijackers of 9-11 or sympathizers, should he still be appointed as a federal judge? And take just a moment to cast a vote in my X poll. You can find the X poll, used to be called Twitter, but you can find it at Lars Larson Show. Is Tucker Carlson selling out America by doing an interview with Vladimir Putin of Russia? I said no to that. I think it's ridiculous. Every journalist tries to get great interviews, no matter who the people happen to be. And and again, I'll answer the question ahead of time. I've been asked this question, I don't know, probably a thousand times in the last 50 years. Is there anybody you wouldn't interview? And the answer is no. I'd interview anybody. They say, what about serial killers? Done that. How about people who were convicted criminals? Done that. How about people who were sexual criminals? Done that. I mean, I've I've talked to... Everybody that I can possibly talk to as a journalist. And if you say, well, but you're helping those people out. No, I'm not. Usually, usually the worst people are their own worst enemy. You give them enough rope in an interview and they will hang themselves. But the left has gone absolutely apoplectic about Tucker Carlson sitting down for an interview with Vladimir Putin and offering an interview opportunity to Zelensky of the corrupt country known as Ukraine. So, hey, turnabout's fair play. You want to interview both sides? I see no problem with it. But you can answer the question any way you like. At Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. And always brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long time ago. You can join, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Yesterday... Boy, did that burn up the phones yesterday. We got so many naysayers. I have never in all the years, almost 30 years in talk radio, had so many naysayers in a single day. And they were all wanting to talk about that Michigan mom, the one who was convicted and found guilty yesterday of involuntary manslaughter in the four murders committed by her 15-year-old son. She didn't hold the gun. She didn't point the gun. She didn't pull the trigger. And I wasn't defending her. I thought she deserved to be convicted of involuntary manslaughter. She bought the gun for her 15-year-old son, who apparently had some problems upstairs, a little bit uh, mentally warped in some way. And even when the school warned her, hey, your kid's drawing these disturbing pictures, and they depict violence and they depict guns, did she say, well, we just bought him one a couple of days ago. Maybe we should find out where it is. She did not. Did the school say, hey, maybe we should look in the kid's backpack? They did not. 
the principal of the school did say, hey, this backpack seems very heavy, as he handed it back to the kid who would later that day murder four people. Well, should parents sometimes be held criminally liable when a child commits mass murder? 59% of you said no. I said yes. I was on the 41%, The I guess if you want to call it the losing side, I would consider it the winning side. But glad to take your phone calls and glad to take your emails as well. Talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go to Benjamin in Michigan. Hey, Benjamin, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Well, so I've been thinking about the whole Zuckerberg on Capitol Hill or Congress last week, and it occurred to me that... People could be using tools like OpenDNS, MD, MDM, to block all this social media stuff. The bad uh, stuff. With OpenDNS, it right. literally takes your public IP address from your modem. You replace the IP address that it gives you for your, the DNS we, we get it. So, so parents can block their kids from going to social media. I think it's probably a smart thing for parents to do. But it kind of dodges the central question that was put to people like Zuckerberg and others. Why are you allowing notoriously dangerous stuff to be put on this platform at all? Whether it's child pornography, whether it's child trafficking, uh, other kinds of illegal activities, why are they allowing it on there at all? And does the government have a role in determining, uh, in, in encouraging them to make sure that stuff doesn't get out there? And I don't disagree with that, that premise either. But we can take the next step and say, you're not going to control it. We're not going to go there. And then watch their ads and all that, their stocks go right down. Well, you could, or you could tell them we're taking away Section 230 protection from you, and then you can get sued. You can get sued for the things you put up there because you promised you'd be a platform, and, in fact, you lied about that. You became a publisher. Benjamin, thanks for the call from Michigan. I wanted to tell you this, though. Washington lawmakers want to ban safe tires that the families of that state ride on when navigating the slippery roads of the Northwest. Now, I happen to live in that state. House Bill 2062 would forbid the tires that best handle snowy and wet highways. Climate change nuts claim those grippy tires, the ones that keep you on the straight and narrow, have too much rolling resistance and they wear out too soon. And that's because they're deep tread and the softer rubber makes them safer and keeps people from getting in wrecks. And that ought to be your choice. But instead, liberal progressives propose to ban the sale of those evil tires the same way they want to ban leaf blowers and natural gas and kitchen stoves and all of that. And your tires become less safe and more expensive at the same time, and that's crazy. Back in a moment, we'll talk to our favorite favorite rabbi. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Most. things you wish you could say more with Lars. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And with me is Rabbi Yaakov Menken, Managing Director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, which happens to be the largest rabbinic public policy organization in America. Rabbi, good to have you back. Glad to be here. And did I hear I'm your favorite rabbi? You are my favorite rabbi. 
I mean, I know That's a few wonderful. other rabbis, but you're my favorite rabbi. You're not, and you're not the one that was yelling at me at the wall one day. I, I think I told you that story. <laughs> he started yelling at me. I don't remember me. that story. If I, I, heard I was that. at the wall, and they have kippahs there, you know, a little hat. And, and I thought, well, I want to be respectful. So I put one on. When I came back, I noticed that next to all these little cheap paper kippahs was a little box with some coins in it. And I thought, oh, uh, you got to put some money in for the cause and help pay for the kippahs. I threw a couple of shekels in there, and this guy comes up and just starts screaming at me. And fortunately, another rabbi that I met uh, who's from Chicago walks up and goes, hey, hey, I'll, I'll handle this. And he talks to the guy for a while because I don't, I don't know, I speak like five words in Hebrew. And, and, he, and he calms the guy down because the guy was really bent. And, and he said, Lars, it's Sabbath. He says, you can't do any business on Sabbath. I said, I'm not doing business. I'm giving a contribution. He said, you can't exchange any money, even dropping shekels in the, in the little collection box for a good cause is considered verboten. Probably not want to use that word, but, but forbidden on Sabbath. And, and that's why the guy was yelling at you. And I said, Oh, okay. I was just trying to I'm wrinkling up because a non-Jewish person giving charity, I don't see the crime. Well, maybe maybe it was the venue. Maybe it was the venue is where I I was. I I understand the venue. Yeah, I guess it doesn't look great, but, you know, like, (laughs) oh, just leave it up. Anyway. So so on Sabbath, if I owe you any money, Rabbi, I'm only going to run into you on Sabbath because I don't have to pay you back. Um, there you go. <laughs> but let me ask you about why why is Biden putting a hijacker, a 9-11 hijacker sympathizer on the federal bench for a lifetime appointment? What is going on there? Well, there's a couple of really bent things coming out of the White House right now in, in the middle of all this. You know that yep. um, announcing a strategy on Islamophobia uh, deciding that only four uh, Israelis on the West Bank are, are, are dangerous, while terrorist attacks on the West Bank against Jews are going on on a daily basis. You know, for them to then turn around, do we have this fellow who was a, a strong backer of this terror-supporting center at Rutgers, which is, of course, another whole issue unto itself. How is it that Rutgers University, on the public dime, is having this terror-supporting center, and I, I'm, I'm not using the term lightly. They really do justify Hamas terrorism, justify killing Jews, uh, uh, you know, in, in numerous ways. And this this fellow uh, Manji, who's a, uh, a a judge somewhere at, at this stage of the game, they're trying to nominate him for a permanent seat on a lifetime seat on a federal bench. And this fellow was a backer and sponsor of of this center. He gave large amounts of his own money to the center. He got his uh, law firm to give money. And now, you know, on 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 when he was questioned by Republicans, the Republicans say to him, you know, like, how is it that they did this, that, and the other? He says, well, I don't really know what the center was doing. Really? Is that why you gave them thousands of dollars? He gave thousands of dollars to an organization, and he had no idea what they were doing or what their purpose or cause was. That doesn't make sense. That's what he wants us to believe. That's correct. And and not only that, but the left turned around. What's really shameful about this whole episode is that uh, senators like Cruz and, and Hawley and Graham were asking completely appropriate questions about this lawyers association with this terror supporting center 
And because he's a Muslim, even organizations like the ADL and the AJC said, oh, how is it that you're asking these completely inappropriate lines of question that seem to indicate bias against his Muslim faith? I'm sorry, it has nothing to do with him being Muslim. Most Muslims do not involve themselves with terror-supporting organizations. That's not what they do. Well, it's also a strange thing, Rabbi. Over the years, I've met, I don't know, probably hundreds of judges, might even be a thousand. And most of them, even in casual conversation, say, hey, what do you think about that? And they'll say, Lars, I really can't espouse an, an opinion because I'll conflict myself out on cases. And so I, I don't talk about my opinions. This is a guy who is currently a judge, was a member, is a lawyer, and and is supporting a radical idea in this country, uh, a radical center with radical ideas, and he's taking positions that doesn't even sound like most judges to me, because most judges say, "Lars, if I ever talk about guns or you know abortion or anything else, I can't judge, I, I can't hear a case involving that, so I keep my opinions to myself." Well, to be correct, he is, he, since he's a lawyer now, and I want to correct myself, he's, okay. he is he's a lawyer just... working in, in, in legal practice. He is allowed to take these opinions. However, sure. what's what's clear about this is that there are certain opinions, but you're welcome to have them, but you're not going to get put on a federal bench if you have them. No. If you want to tear down the United States and protest against the Constitution, well, you, that's great. You want to do that on your own dime? You're allowed to do that because we have freedom of speech in this country. But we're not going to put you on the federal bench and have you administer American law when you believe all American law should be torn down. Well, so too over here. If a person is supporting terrorism, that's kind of against American ideals. I would like to think so. In fact, in fact, it's very likely if he's on the federal bench, there's a federal law that is about giving material support to terrorist organizations. And I think one of the most famous cases was the Holy Land Foundation. And you say, so what happens when a judge like this hears a case against a group that's raising money for or otherwise gathering resources to aid and abet terrorist organizations? He's clearly got a dog in the fight, doesn't he, Rabbi? This is not somebody who would judge a case like that impartially and fairly. And obviously that is a basic expectation that we have for a judge at, at any level, much less someone nominated to a federal court of appeals. Now, I want to ask you about one other thing, and that is the, the this deal that was proposed by Hamas, you know, which I think Netanyahu was right saying, no, we're not doing that deal. Biden apparently wanted it to happen, and it was, we'll give you the hostages back. So, in other words, we're negotiating with terrorists. And number two, they're getting part of what they want, which is a longer-term ceasefire. And Netanyahu, I think, properly turned it down. Sounds like Biden didn't want to. He wanted to make deals with terrorists. One interesting, excuse me, something that was interesting that was noted today um, is that the International Court of Justice, of course, has been dealing with this absolutely obscene, ridiculous, anti-Semitic effort by South Africa and the African National Congress, which maybe should be renamed at this point the African Nazi Congress, uh, they were trying to actually accuse Israel of genocide for trying to eradicate Hamas. Well, one of the things that the judges said in their provisional statement is they called for the hostages to be released immediately and unconditionally. Wow. So Hamas, by issuing this offer of a plan that 
says, no, we're not going to release the hostages until X, until Y, until the, means they are in immediate violation of the International Court of Justice's order. So all of this story about how Israel is supposed to be uh, held to account in the International Court of Justice, well, it just turned out that Hamas is blatantly violating the conditions that were laid out. So well, watch, watch the protesters against Israel say absolutely nothing as Hamas continues to violate international law. Because That's if the international one. court had said, okay, Israel's guilty of genocide, they'd be happy to trumpet that from the rooftops, wouldn't they? Exactly. But now, they, and all they're saying is, oh, you see how it's so bad for Israel and blah, blah, blah. And they will say nothing about the fact that Hamas is now in violation. They, they were always in violation of international law. It was never that to this idea of taking civilians hostages is absolutely an obscenity, absolutely a war crime. And nobody wanted to talk about it. But now the International Court of Justice has said so, and they're still ignoring it. But to get to the point of this so-called offer, you know, one of the things that they said is it should be ab- one of the conditions that Hamas wants to put in this whole deal. Tell me this is not anti-Semitic. Say it quick. Jews should not be allowed to step foot on the Temple Mount. Unbelievable. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, who's managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values. Rabbi, thank you very much. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. guessing what he'll say next. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Uh, I want to mention this before I go to calls, but it has to do with the WWE. Now, I don't routinely watch the WWE. I've certainly watched that. I've also watched UFC fights, um, and, and I find them entertaining. But there is a former WWE superstar, uh, this guy Gabe Tuff, who is known as Tyler Rex. He left the WWE in 2012, and then he transitioned. This is a guy six foot, two inches tall, 280 pounds, and he used to brag that he only had 6% body fat at his peak. So this guy was built, and he weighed almost three bills. And he quits the WWE in 2012, about 12 years ago. And now he wants to reenter the ring as a woman. He claims that he has lost 190 pounds somehow. I don't know how that happened, but he decided to transition from man to woman should he be allowed to compete in the women's division, having competed as an absolute beast in the men's division? Doesn't sound right to me. Uh, glad to be with you and glad to take your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. Let me go first to John. John, you heard us talking yesterday about this Michigan mom who was convicted of, uh, in, just so the rest of the audience knows, involuntary manslaughter in the four deaths uh, murders that were committed by her teenage son using a gun that she bought him and a gun she certainly didn't properly supervise, and she's now been convicted by a jury. What do you think of that? Well, so far I think the, the court's got this half right. Uh, we're going to deal with Dad coming up, but but I, I think I think increasingly the courts are are looking at this through the prism of a politician, and it just drives me crazy. But the, <clears throat> what what the uh, what the court is finding out, or what I hope 
parents across this nation are finding out is that weapons purchased for their kid within their household are their weapons. It's not that kid's weapon. Mom I and agree. Dad both failed to secure that weapon in their household. I also think we need to clean house at the school district. If if the school administrator handed back the book bag or backpack to this young man in the building and that wasn't searched first, i got to wonder what we're doing there. I'm not sure what the law is in Michigan about searching somebody's person or their effects. Oh, I, I think I, I, I could tell you generically, John, that within the public schools, uh, when I went to high school, there was a locker. I perceived it as my locker. But the locker was inside the school building. It was subject to search. No matter how much I might want my privacy, that locker was in. And you could say, well, that locker belonged to the school. And, and you'd be right. My understanding is they could search that backpack, and especially if they decided since they have an affirmative responsibility to provide for the safety of every kid in that building, uh, then they then they have, an, a, an, I think, a, res, a responsibility to check what was inside that backpack. And they didn't. And, and it's and especially ironic that the principal of the school, now former principal of the school, testified at the trial that when he handed the bag back, he said to the young man, boy, this is really a heavy backpack. Well, it was heavy because it had a gun and a lot of extra ammo in it. So wouldn't you think that common sense, if you had the common sense to be a school principal, the common sense would tell you, I'm talking to a young man. His mom's been called to the school because we're concerned about the, the drawings he's making depicting violence and guns. And, uh, and we've called his mom down. We're that concerned about it that we call his mom down. They took a hold of his backpack for a time. And then without asking what was in it or demanding that the young man show what was in it or simply saying, we're going to assert we have the right to search that bag to provide for your safety and the safety of every other kid in the building. And the principal didn't do that. Certainly should be some culpability there. It's just absolutely crazy that our administrators of our schools and all levels really, and, and clear down to many of the teachers, um, act as politicians. They, they find some way to just obfuscate their responsibility and not act. Would you and agree clearly, that the mom was guilty of involuntary manslaughter? Absolutely. I'm with you on this. She provided for that gun, and she did not secure it or didn't verify that it was secured before leaving the kid at that school. I, and honestly... I can't believe that neither parent took the rest of the day off to figure out what was going on with their kid that day. That well, I, I would think the very least you do is is you get called to the school and they're concerned about what your kid is drawn. Now, I've seen schools overreact, too. But in this case, I would think the least a parent would do is say, why don't you have my son come home with me and we'll sit down and have a heart-to-heart about what this is all about. And it also seems that I would think she would have said at that moment, He's drawing pictures of guns and, and violent images. Uh, you might volunteer the information to the school and say, well, I just bought him a gun a couple of days ago. And the first obvious question would be, well, where is that gun right now? That's what makes this so intriguing. She never volunteered the information. Now, was she legally uh, required to? No. But, but you would think if somebody had this concern 
You know, gee, we found some chemicals in your son's locker. Well, we just brought him a chemistry set last weekend. And do we have it locked up somewhere at home? And uh, and she didn't. And she could have locked up the gun. And See, John, I think there are people who are pro-Second Amendment like me. And I don't take kindly to the government telling me what to do or how to do it. I've been wearing a seatbelt my entire life since I was a little kid. My parents thought it was a good idea. I still think it's a good idea today. If they took the law away, because when I ask people, why do you wear a seatbelt? They say, because it's because the law says so. I said, you don't do it just because it makes sense that you don't want to go through your windshield if your car happens to stop abruptly. And uh, and they say, no, no, if the law wasn't there, I wouldn't do it. It's as though they go through their whole life saying, I do only what the government tells me to do. And if the government doesn't tell me to do it, even if it makes complete sense. So my attitude about guns is I'm very pro Second Amendment. I own a bunch of guns and they're all locked up. I mean, against thieves, against improper use, against a hundred other things. But wouldn't you think that mom would have said my first concern right now? I need to talk to my son. I need to see what's in his backpack. We need to go home and locate that gun and we need to lock it up. None of that happened. Exactly. Everything that could break down broke down in this situation. I'm very pro-Second Amendment myself, and I just cannot believe how sideways this whole thing went. I guess and, and and even when you use the term breakdown, I think of a breakdown as I'm driving down the road in my car and, and part of it breaks and just stops. And so I'm off on the side of the road. That's a breakdown. To me, when people make a conscious decision... Can you believe, John, that having bought that gun three, I think, three days earlier, that when the school brings up guns and violence, that you don't immediately think, I just bought him a pistol. Where is it? Does he have it? Doesn't that immediately shoot through through the head of any sensible person? It sure should. And apparently it did not. John, I appreciate the call from uh, Washington. Let's go to uh, Brett in Nevada. Hey, Brett, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. Hey, good stuff there. Hey, I just Thank wanted you. to make a comment on on the, the trans wrestler guy or girl. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, yeah. You know, okay, so I understand the feelings that, that you're expressing, and I can agree with you uh, and run front row with you against the you know regular athletics and stuff. Now, these people are athletics. I mean, they're athletes, but that's all produced. It's all theater and drama. It I is. think that's the best place for this situation to happen. See, and why I don't, this is a guy who's had an entire lifetime with testosterone in his body and the muscle mass of a guy who had 6% body fat and weighed 280 and 6'2". Okay? So this guy... That's crazy. And, and, then, and then you say, but I'm going to become a girl. So I'll take hormones. It'll help offset some of what Mother Nature, what God gave him, and what he developed in muscles and stature and weight and size. And you're going to go compete against women, even in a produced uh, production like that. I think that's dangerous to the women. I don't think it's fair to the women either. But, Brett, thank you. Best investment in talk radio, and it's free. 
Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and always glad to welcome back our friend Terry Schilling, who's president of the American Principles Project. Terry, how are you? Thanks so much for having me, Lars. I'm better. I'm doing better today than I think Nikki Haley is because she spent tens of millions of dollars of other people's money and she doesn't. She's a little bit more successful than Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris was when she ran for president, but not by very much, especially when you consider what happened in Nevada. No, that's exactly right, Lars. And this is incredibly embarrassing. But Nikki Haley participated in the Nevada primary and lost to none of these candidates. Uh, the, the only chance where she actually had to win a contest where Donald Trump wasn't even on the ballot was this, and she still lost by two-thirds of the vote. Sixty, It was over 60% voted for none of these candidates. It's, it's embarrassing at this point. I mean, I know they had to frame it as none of these candidates. Most of us over the years have called it none of the above, where we wish we could vote for none of the above. But she and, and, and somehow she's saying this is unfair. I mean, she's actually complaining about that kind of result because all the delegates were awarded by the Nevada caucuses, weren't they? Did she was she not aware of that? No, I apparently not. Apparently, her team got her signed up for the primary where they where you can't even get delegates instead of the caucus. Again, this was never about actually making Nikki Haley the nominee. This was about extracting as much pain and dividing the party as much as possible leading into this next election. There has never been a worse president than Joe Biden, right? He's actually worse than Jimmy Carter. Things are worse than under Jimmy Carter. I just want to repeat that. And they need to do everything they can to divide the Republicans if they, if they want to win. I've always said that Joe Biden is the best news that Jimmy Carter ever got, because I've called Jimmy Carter the worst president in American in recent modern American history for a long time. And then along comes Joe Biden and says, hey, you didn't think anybody could be worse than Jimmy. Well, it's Joe. And by the way, did you did you see what the turnout figures were in South Carolina for uh, for Joe Biden in the Democrat Party that everybody was trumpeting? He got 96 percent of the vote. But did you see the turnout figures? No, I know it was abysmally low. It was very it, low. It was, uh, was 4.01%. Now, I understand people could say, well, but the Democrats are going to choose Joe. So does he need to show up? Well, I, I think they spent a bunch of money. Uh, they, they very much wanted South Carolina to be the number one primary instead of New Hampshire. And they didn't get that. And that screwed up Joe because Joe didn't show up on the ballot in New Hampshire because of that. But imagine this. The enthusiasm for Joe Biden is so high that he managed to get 4% of the voters in the state to show up on a primary election and vote for him. I understand he's already got a lock on the name nomination, I guess. But, you know, because who knows who's going to actually be the Democrat nominee? Nobody seems to be really sure of it. But the idea that only 4% of the Democrats decided to even show up and cast a ballot for the man, that can't be very good news either, is it? No, it's not. I mean, and think about this. I, I guarantee that Barack Obama's reelection numbers in these primaries were sky high. In fact, I remember that because my dad was running for Congress in 2012, and we were looking at those numbers. So, hey, listen, the, the, the enthusiast, how could you be excited about Joe Biden? He's, he's actually senile. Like, this is not speculation. He, he can barely keep his eyes open. He can't put sentences together anymore. He sounds tired. He's not just tired. He sounds haggard. Right? They're, they're abusing this guy on national TV. Everyone knows it, including the progressives in the media, but no one's willing to say the emperor has senile uh, tendencies. I mean, this is so bad. 
Well, and in fact, uh, somebody did this the other day, and I actually thought it was right on target, although they said it wasn't nice to the late Bo Biden, who died of cancer. He didn't die in a war, as Joe keeps telling audiences. But he had done a, a public service announcement in which he appealed for people to uh, to consider the issue of elder abuse. And then they took this video from years and years ago before uh, before uh, Bo Biden died of cancer. And uh, and they they paired it up with some of the infamous images of his dad, you know, stumbling and bumbling and falling all over himself because it really is a case of elder abuse. And you kind of wonder why more people aren't standing up and saying this. This just isn't right. You shouldn't you know. No matter how much I disagree with his policy positions and things like that, it's not right to have the guy put in that position. And yet his wife doesn't seem to object to it. His party doesn't object to it. And it really it really is a shameful performance on those on the left saying, well, he's there. We may get stuck with him as the nominee. So we can't we can't dare come out and actually say what any reasonable person would say, which is don't keep this guy in this position. Well, but but. Lars, it's not just bad for him, it's bad for all of us. Right? This is partly why we know why the, the threats about Putin and, and everyone acting hysterical about him, that even the Democrats don't take it seriously. Because if Putin was actually a threat to this country, and I'm not a defender of him, I know he's a, a bad I'm man and a tyrant, but, but he, if he was actually a threat to the United States, how in the world could they justify re-electing Joe Biden? And not replacing him immediately, right? If we're, I mean, I really do fear that we're stepping into World War III. If there's all these conflicts across the globe, and one little match can light it all off and get us into this. This is not the time to have Joe Biden as president, right? And the Democrats know it. Everyone knows it. But they're keeping him in there. It's dangerous for all 340 million of us. Yeah, it is. And and unless they want to come out and admit Joe isn't actually calling the shots, he's sticking around for the ice cream every afternoon and somebody else is actually making the decisions. But they can't afford to do that. They could barely do it with, you know, with FDR, who was cared for in his latter years. But if they admitted about Joe Biden saying he's just a figurehead, it's weekend at Joe's and somebody else is actually making the decisions, then they're making extraordinarily bad decisions. Because, as you said, they seem to be walking us right up to World War Three. No, that, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and, and if you remember, just a few weeks ago, Lloyd Austin went in for a serious, serious surgery and was out of commission for, I think, what was it, two weeks? Two weeks. Two weeks. Yep. And, and Joe Biden didn't even know about it. No one told him. Right? This is, if you're, if you're Putin, if you're Xi Jinping, if you're any of these foreign leaders, you're looking at us and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is our opportunity to seize. They want to turn us into the consumers. They've been doing all the crap work and the grunt work. They want to reverse it. And, and we're, we're about to let that happen. It, we, ha- we have to get rid of this guy. They have to put, I'm praying that they nominate someone else just for the, the, the sake of if something happens and he gets reelected, that we are all going to, I don't know. It's, it's such a tough time to be here. Well, and Terry, country. you know what you made me think of? Idi Amin. Because remember, I mean, on planet Earth, there are some heads of state who are, you know, way out to, you know, left field, like the head of North Korea, the little crazy man. But nobody kind of matched Idi Amin. I mean, he was from a tiny country, but he was he was crazy. He was full on crazy. And everybody on the planet knew it and talked about it and everything else. But that's for little nothing countries. When the most powerful country on the on the planet is run by a guy that everyone seems to recognize 
isn't there, isn't making the decisions. Nobody really knows who's making the decisions, but he's still there. That is, as you said, dangerous to all of us and deeply disturbing. That's Terry Schilling, president of the American Principles Project. It's a pleasure to be with you. Check out our Instagram feed, and yeah, you're going to find out i got a face for radio. Send me an email, talk at LarsLarson.com, and tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic, it's in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. Pleasure to be with you. I want to tell you about this case involving a young lady working in healthcare who decided I have to quit my job. And why? I mean, lots of people quit jobs, but she quit because she says that she was forced to go along with her employer's insistence that she help children decide to change their gender. I'll get into the details of that in just a moment. First, I want to go to some of your calls. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And let me start with Eileen. Eileen, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Oh, thanks. Thanks for you and Lucky Payton, your granddaughter who has you as a role model and your wife. You're very sweet. Know know what's what in life. I have legal guardianship of a special needs great-grandson that I love. Oh, good for you for um, taking care of that special needs. For Ellen, Ellen, you go. <laughs> Tanya, wake up. But basically what I called today for was to say I heard that the Super Bowl is now going to have two national anthems on Sunday. One will be ours, uh, supposedly uh, sung by Reba, and the other will be for blacks. We are one. We are one. And the blacks have accepted our national anthem until this chaotic uh, losers. Eileen, i got to tell you, I think the vast majority of black Americans still accept that the national anthem of the United States is the Star Spangled Banners. And I, I, in fact, I've talked to a number of friends I have who are people of color who say, look, I don't need a black national anthem. I like America's national anthem. It's just one more effort by people to try to divide people in the United States and say, oh, there's one national anthem for this group and another one for that group. It's politics, isn't it? Yeah, it's sickening. Absolutely. I'm an old fossil of 76, and I wish I had my life back when I was little to live through again. It's so much better than what it is now. Well, unfortunately... I think we've got a great country. I mean, I agree with Trump on this, that I think America is a great country. Is it being run badly by an awful lot of people at the national level and even at your local level? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can we get it back? Yeah, we can. But you're going to have to push some people out of office at some point. Speaking of how it used to be and how it is now, 
Let me give you this example. This is a very young lady. She's a therapist, and she says that she was forced to quit her job by the demands that were put on her by a system called MultiCare. It's one of the largest hospital systems, and she worked as a social worker. Her name is Tamara Pietsky, and one of these days, I hope I get a chance to talk to her. I don't know the young lady, but I know that I'm proud of what she's done because what she decided to do was what so many health professionals were not willing to do during the pandemic, and they haven't been willing to do it lately with this new issue involving so-called transgenderism or gender-affirming care. She says that MultiCare, the system she worked for, started pushing gender-affirming care. Now, why? Because the pediatric clinic, so the clinic for kids that she worked in, got a $100,000 donation in May, about two years ago, to study health care disparities in transgender youth. And here's the quote I love. I was getting the message from my supervisors that when a young person I was seeing, so she's counseling young children, expressed discomfort with their gender, the diagnostic term is gender dysphoria, that I should throw out all my training, no matter what the patient's history of other mental health conditions that could be complicating the situation, I was simply to affirm that the patient was transgender and even approve the start of a medical transition. She wrote about this in the national publication called The Free Press. She says that her supervisors pressured her to go along with the gender-affirming care model with three of her biological female teenage patients, even though every single patient had several other complicated histories and they had other kinds of mental health diagnoses beyond gender dysphoria, including autism and sexual abuse. And if you say, well, Lars, don't you feel for people with autism? Absolutely, I do. In fact, there is a stunning number of autistic patients who are among those that are beginning gender transitions. And yet autism isn't that common in the population. It isn't as common as autism among transgenders. And you say, well, maybe maybe that just goes with the territory. No. What's going on, I think, is that autistic people, including autistic children, are being taken advantage of by a system that sees billions of dollars that could be made by so-called gender-affirming care handing out the hormones, giving the surgery, uh, chemical castration of teenage boys, double mastectomies for teenage girls. All of that is worth a gigantic amount of money. I think I shared with you last year that the estimate in the United States for the total dollars spent on so-called gender-affirming care, like chemical castrations um, for teenage boys, is $2.2 billion dollars in the year 2023. In 2024, it is forecast to be higher. And within the next couple of years, the estimate for what this transgender nonsense is going to be worth to the medical establishment is north of $5 billion every single year. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger unless somebody changes the course. And I'd point out to you that in Europe, there are a whole bunch of countries that were very much into the transgender, gender-affirming care, and they were offering transitions. And then they found people who had given, been given the transition, and it didn't solve their psychological problems. They were still unhappy. Many of them wanted to, to transition back to what they were before. And the sad thing is 
an awful lot of the people who've gone through the hormone treatments and the surgery, and these are children, are not able to transition back. They're not able to have their former life restored. Consider this, a 13-year-old patient who had depression, PTSD, anxiety, intermittent explosive disorder and autism and was suicidal and had been sexually assaulted. The patient grew up with a bipolar mother in an abusive household. This is reported by the Free Press, where she only watched on television horror and violent pornography. Now, Pietsky, the young lady, the clinical social worker, said she was concerned about the patient's guardian, asked her to prescribe cross-sex hormones after just a few visits. This is what's happening in your community. And if you don't believe it, ask some people in the medical field who are willing to talk openly to you about it and say, are they doing this stuff to kids? Now, most of them will say, well, some of the patients are adults. But the transgender movement knows they need to get to people before they pass through puberty. That means they have to get to kids. And the changes they will make, either with hormones or with surgery or with both, are things that in many cases can't be undone and aren't going to fix the mental health problems that those people are suffering from. And some of them are going to end up taking their lives, sadly. Back in just a moment. Good thing you can't transmit disease through the radio. Trust me, you don't want what he has. More with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you and a real pleasure to welcome back to the program Congressman Matt Gates of Florida. Congressman, it's good to have you. Thanks so much for having me, my friend. What the heck happened with the impeachment of Mayorkas, or the failure to impeach Mayorkas, and you actually pining for Kevin McCarthy? Look, we had a four-seat majority uh, at the start of this Congress, and uh, now we have a one-seat majority. And with three of our colleagues voting with the Democrats uh, to save Mayorkas from the accountability that I think he richly deserves, we ended up precisely one vote short. And I'll start by saying I've never missed George Santos more about because, you know, we we kicked Santos out uh, as the first person to not be convicted of a crime um, to be expelled. And he would have voted to impeach Mayorkas. And then uh, while while certainly I take responsibility for removing McCarthy from the speakership, uh, he then took his marbles and went home. Now, there are 434 other members of the House of Representatives who are willing to uh, serve without being the speaker. For Kevin, when he wasn't able to have the title, he left us, uh, again, one vote short uh, with his departure in Bakersfield, California, not having a representative. And it's uh, pretty it's it must feel bad if you're sitting in Bakersfield, California right now and you're seeing this invasion on our southern border. You wanted to see Mayorkas held accountable. You wanted to see a trial in the Senate with the facts put on. And because your congressman, um, you know, he didn't think enough just stay and be your congressman he left and that that led to the result that we uh we got to last night i'm talking to the man who represents florida's first congressional district and that's congressman matt gates but one of the names kind of surprised me buck 
uh, Buck didn't surprise me. Gallagher of Wisconsin didn't surprise me that much. But Tom McClintock from the state of California, and if anybody knows about the devastating effects of illegal immigration to the United States, illegal aliens being in a, in a state, it's got to be McClintock. Why did he vote no? Uh, it's confusing and, frankly, a little embarrassing for House Republicans that the person who is the chairman of the Judiciary Subcommittee on immigration uh, did not see the high crimes and misdemeanors that a vast majority of us did. Uh, I think that for McClintock, he you know, wanted to see like elements of a felony. And to me, they clearly exist, whether it's the human trafficking, the uh, obstruction of the lawful um, administration of the border, of uh, congressional oversight. Uh, time and again, we saw Mayorkas on, on the wrong side of lies before Congress. That's uh, a crime. You can't do that. And yet he did it over and over again. So uh, I don't know what it is that Mr. McClintock is waiting to see happen on the border that would that would get him to uh, vote for impeachment. But uh, he, uh, uh, you know, has been consistent in that position. One thing I can tell you is this wasn't a surprise for, for from Tom McClintock. He had been pretty clear with the conference and certainly with his colleagues on the Judiciary Committee that he did not believe that Mayorkas had committed impeachable offenses. I, I mean, I don't live in California, Matt. I'm talking to Congressman Matt Gates, but I, I've seen the numbers before that if you took all the illegal aliens and the incredible weight they put on the state of California, the state of California would go from one of the biggest poverty states in America to being a prosperous state with a largely balanced state budget. And that's that's before we got to the invasion that Joe Biden has sponsored now. And and then on the other side, I want to ask about the other chamber as well, because how in the world did uh, Senator Langford and his buddies, including Mitch McConnell, think, oh, we're going to put together a deal that's going to institutionalize the illegal crossing of 5000 a day, not counting children. But as long as it doesn't go past 5000, it's going to be OK. They actually thought that thing was was a was something worth proposing because this suggests to me that the republicans on the senate side just don't know anything about anything uh, they certainly don't know much about the house of representatives if they thought that that monstrosity was ever going to be considered or become law uh, there were so many bad things in that bill the billions of dollars in that bill to uh ngos to funnel people into the country, to put them up in houses or in, in hotel rooms, to give them cell phones, to provide transportation. I mean, that bill would have had the American people funding their own invasion, which is so self-defeating. Uh, I'm glad it's been dragged behind the barn and, and put down. But now we get word that Mitch McConnell wants to do a big, $60 billion for Ukraine lashed to around $17 billion for Israel and then more money for Taiwan and stockpiles and wants to send that over as one massive unpaid for like $80 billion um, deficit spend. And I would not vote for that. And I'm working the phones now to build a coalition of representatives to oppose the McConnell-Biden uh, supplemental that will increase our debt and our deficit and won't make us safer and may, in fact, sleepwalk us into World War Three with a nuclear power. 
Well, and Congressman Gates, I, from the beginning, I've been I've been asking my audience and everybody who comes out, where's the national interest in Ukraine? And you've got you've also got Taiwan and you've got Israel, and and, and if they're going to decide the issues, they ought to decide them one at a time. But the Democrats won't do that. And now they're going to say, well, Republicans don't really want border reform because what they proposed had no chance of winning. Well, no, it didn't have any chance of winning. I I don't understand why Langford didn't get that. I do want to ask you about the resolution you introduced uh, regarding President Trump and the whole question of insurrection, which has been a political football for now now three years. Uh, what was it you're suggesting the House do? Uh, the House of Representatives should authoritatively declare that Donald Trump did not participate in an insurrection or a rebellion against the United States. And it's so obvious, I can't even believe I have to say it out loud or file legislation on that point. But right now, you have uh, unelected bureaucrats, you have uh, woke-topian election boards, you've got uh, these Biden-aligned lawfare groups in the name of democracy, trying to limit our ability to vote for the leading presidential candidate. And, I, I mean, if what, the, if what the defense of democracy requires is removing candidates from the ballot and limiting the choices of the voters, then I'm not here for that version of democracy. I like the version of democracy where the people get to make the selection, not some unelected bureaucrat wearing green eye shades in a windowless cubicle in Colorado. I mean, Matt, I, I don't make any secrets about it. I tell my audience, I'm a Trump guy, and I think he was the best. Pre- he's the best president of the 21st century. Obama didn't even begin to compare, and certainly not Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden's the best news that ever happened to Jimmy Carter. But, but, but he's he's going to win the Republican nomination. He's already got it just about a lock on it, and he's leading Joe Biden by five points. Uh, they're going to try everything in the book to take him out of this contest because they realize they can't beat him. So what's coming at him next? Do you have any idea? Look, look, I I worry about the predictions my friend Tucker Carlson makes about assassination being about the only thing they have left. I pray for President Trump's physical security, uh, for his security from these assaults in the law. And it's not really about him. See, the left, they want to make it about him. But it's about all of us. President Trump is the masthead for a dynamic, vertically integrated political movement where people are running for school board, state legislature, uh, Congress. I meet them all over this country, and we are unified by a set of values and principles, and really patriotism is the glue that holds it together. Now, of course, President Trump provides the vision, but it's really that it's really the whole rest of the iceberg that I think is bringing the establishment to this precipice where they are they are doing some very anti-democratic and anti-American things so that we all don't get more of the great power that that is our birthright. And they're doing all that anti-democratic stuff in the name of democracy. Congressman Gates, keep up the good work. Thanks for the time. Thanks for having me on, Lars. Take yes, care. sir. That's Congressman Matt Gates from Florida. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls. If you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, used to be called Twitter, now it's the X, so uh, we're calling it the poll on X. In any case, the question is there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com.
Lars Larson Show. This is McGruff the Crime Dog. Exploiting your First Amendment right every single day. This is Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. Now, there's one character in American politics that I have very little use for, and apparently American voters had very little use for him either. John Kerry, he ran for president. He failed at that. He went to work for Joe Biden as the climate czar, and then he spent most of his time hopping on private airplanes, flying around the world, and lecturing people on how we shouldn't be flying on airplanes and burning fossil fuels. But there's more to dislike about John Kerry than just that. And I wanted to talk to Daniel Turner about it, who's president of Power of the Future. Uh, Daniel, welcome back. Laura, it's always a pleasure to be on your program. Thank you, sir. So what is it we should know about John Kerry and have good reason to suspect is true, and yet we can't find out what this guy was doing with our money in our government? Well, everyone who works for the government, who has the power of government, um, is uh, subjective to subject to the uh, accountability of the American taxpayers and of the Congress. And so you don't have the ability to say, well, I'm going to have a secret lunch and not tell anybody about it. Your schedule is is available to the American public, who you're meeting with, who you hire, um, how much do those people make? Um, and this is what comes with being a public servant. They are public servants. And for years, my organization, Power of the Future, has tried to find out what is going on in John Kerry's office, who his staff is, uh, how he hired them, where did they come from? Um, and then just simple things like, what did you do this week? What are your goals? What, who are you meeting with? And John Kerry has refused to share that information. And yet it's public information. Now, I want to emphasize something. Some of his people on his staff, he pays about $4 million bucks a year out of taxpayer money to people on his staff. And they make 186000 which if you listen to NBA you know, salaries or baseball salaries, they don't sound that big. But the federal government tends to limit people. I think Karine Jean-Pierre, as spokeswoman for Joe Biden, makes a couple, of, just under a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. So nobody has stratospheric baller money, except maybe the president, the vice president, and Anthony Fauci, and he's gone now. Uh, but uh, not dead, but he's he's out of the government now and probably making a lot more. But these these are, at least for government, they're stratospheric salaries. Do we even know who these people are? No, and that's the other curious thing. He must have a chief of staff. Uh, he must have a comms director. If you want a meeting with John Kerry, who, who arranges that? And those are very honest and simple and straightforward questions that any government office should be able to answer. And John Kerry's answer is, I'm not telling you. Um, and and that should raise a lot of eyebrows because you realize how many hundreds of billions of dollars in green energy, quote-unquote, investment, the Biden administration is, is handing out, John Kerry's office is a huge part of that. And so there's a lot of potential of, of, of secret meetings of maybe unsavory characters who are showing up the door, either with their handout asking for money or pushing policy agendas. Hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you ban stoves? Why don't you make EVs required? 
And, and the fact that John Kerry says, well, I'm not sharing these details with you, makes me believe, and it probably does most people, yeah, there's a good reason he doesn't want you to know what's happening in his office, because you wouldn't like it. Well, and, and not only that, but I worry about corruption as well, because you know how much we've talked over the years about, not you and I, but, but on the show, about Nancy Pelosi and her husband's stock trading. And you say, how is it that her husband always seems to know the right stocks to sell and the right time to sell them? Well, because he sleeps with Nancy Pelosi. I know it's a scary idea, but there you go. Um, and if you've got a, a whole staff of people, 20 or so people, who work in an office where energy is the subject and where you find out, oh, we're not going to back that battery factory or we are going to back that solar panel factory, those things in the right hands, in the right ears, uh, are worth tens of millions of dollars, except you can't figure out whether or not these people have that kind of a dog in the fight because you don't even know who they are, right? And and, and that's a great point. And this administration has been talking about uh, spending enormous amounts of money for international climate awareness and funding of climate projects around the world. And a lot of those projects around the world are opening mines, opening lithium, opening uh, battery factories. And so, yeah, if you had a little tip to say, hey, you know, the Biden administration is going to write a check to uh, uh, Chile to help them expand copper. Well, that may be a good time to jump on that country uh, company's <laughs> stock ticket and and buy stock. So again, you're absolutely right. These are huge corruption issues, and and it just goes back to you know almost 250 years ago. John Adams he passionately said, "We need a country of laws, not of men." He he realized men like the king are capricious. Sometimes, like George the Third, they go insane. I mean, we could maybe say the same about Biden. But we can't be subject to the whims or the caprice of individuals. And we, we are back to that. We don't have a rule of law when John Kerry says, you know what, Mr. S- uh, 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 Mr. Larson, I'm, I'm not telling you what I did this weekend. You don't have a right to know. That's not no, America. No, and, and, and by the way, we all understand there are probably some meetings that the president or other officials have that for security reasons or other reasons might legitimately be cloaked. But the vast majority of their schedule should be public. Is there any other Biden administration, either cabinet department or, in this case, non-cabinet, just a czar, uh, that is as secretive as this one is? Um, they're maybe not as secretive, but what the Biden administration is doing, and we have Freedom of Information Act requests at almost every agency, they will just slow roll you. Hey, we need 15 more days. Hey, guess what? We missed the deadline. Glory is out till Tuesday, and you just delay, delay. And that's what John Kerry's office did. Well, actually, they just flat out said no, um, and that's why we filed this suit. Many agencies will just just delay you to death and hope you'll you'll wear out the clock. And and, and wearing out the clock, Laura, is the problem. We're wearing out money, right? Lawsuits are expensive. Lawyers are expensive. I don't want to be in court. I don't want to go to court. I, I have better things to do. Well, but but this is what I have. I have no other recourse to find out what John Kerry's doing. Daniel, my audience knows I was a reporter for a long time. Is it possible to get any allies in the White House briefing room to get somebody other than Peter Ducey to ask some questions and say, hey, Karine Jean-Pierre, how come the people who work for John Kerry and their salaries and what they're doing on a daily basis are top secret? Because she can't exactly say, well, 
you know, you're asking about the CIA or you're asking about an FBI investigation. You're asking about a, a, an office funded by the government, funded by the taxpayers that does the public's business where there's no gigantic security concern about who the people yeah. are in the climate czar's office. And I wonder how she'd answer that one. I would love to be able to have that happen. And it's and it's something if, if I could find the champions in the press. But isn't it more fun to ask about his favorite ice cream flavor? Because that's how you get invited to the White House Christmas party. And that's how you get on the next Air Force One flight. So we have a lapdog media in the White House, minus Peter Ducey. We have a a lapdog White House Correspondents Association that never wants to make trouble because that's just they're they're part of the agenda. So I wish you were still a reporter, Lars, because we would we would have you asking the tough questions. I I, look, I I, this just drives me crazy, though, because ordinarily when reporters find out that a public official has said, we're not going to tell you that piece of public information that makes them it makes a real reporter salivate. You say, well, if you've decided you're not going to tell me it, I'm going to try twice as hard to pry it loose from you, because if you don't want to tell me about that, Usually the best reason that you're doing that is because it's something that would make a great headline or a great lead story on television or radio. That's Daniel Turner. His organization, Power of the Future, has brought a lawsuit against the Biden administration. And all they're asking is John Kerry, climate czar. He's got an office. He's paying $4 million, $4.3 million in salaries. Who are the people he's paying? How much are they making? And what kind of business are they doing on behalf of you and me? Back in a moment, 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails, talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed, and yes, find out I've got a face for radio. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show, and check me out on Instagram. Just your volume. He's just that loud. Lars Larson. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. Yeah, there's Joe Biden just condemning about half of America, all of his MAGA Republican friends. Well, actually, I count myself in that group. You may count yourself in that group as well. So that's Joe Biden condemning all of us that it's not his problem that has been caused on the border. It is our problem. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get to your phone calls in a moment. In fact, I've got a naysayer on hold right now. But I want to tell you something that should scare the daylights out of you. We've not only had a grand total of about 10 million illegal aliens, 8.5 million directly encountered by the Border Patrol, another 1.7 million who've been uh, gotaways. That is, the Border Patrol saw them but never actually got to write them a ticket like that's going to do any good. But one of the most disturbing trends, and we've got some new numbers on it, involves the Chinese because we have a stunning number of Chinese nationals who are coming into the United States illegally. Now, you wonder why. Why is it, and why are most of them young, fighting-age males? These are not men with families, men and women. It's primarily males. 
Well, in all of last fiscal year, now the federal government runs on this funny fiscal year that runs from October 1 to September 31. So in the fiscal year of 2023 that ran from October of 22 to the end of September of 23, there were about 37,000 Chinese nationals who came into the United States. And you say, well, why in particular? In fact, they're the fastest growing group of illegal aliens coming across our border. This year, we're not even to the halfway point of this fiscal year. They've already seen 20,000 Chinese nationals come in. And you wonder if there's in some other agenda tied back to China. Now, the official explanation is that, well, all these Chinese nationals are simply people who just want to escape communist China. And so they fly into a country that China has a deal with where you don't have to have a visa to go to Ecuador. So you have Chinese nationals who have the money to buy an international flight to Ecuador, and then they make their way all the way from Ecuador to the American border and then spend more thousands of dollars to have the cartels bring them across into the United States. And all of it is simply because they're trying to escape the nasty nastiness of the Chinese Communist Party. You don't have to convince me that the Chinese Communist Party is a nasty country. Joe Biden is trying to escape responsibility. He says, The only reason the border is unsecured is because of Donald Trump and his MAGA friends. He's ignoring the fact, and let me remind you of this. Joe Biden took 94 executive actions in his first 100 days in office. In other words, an executive order almost every single day, all of them about dismantling border security. And now he refuses to tell Homeland Security to actually enforce American law. And he says, there's nothing I can do about it. This has become so bad, including the question about why all these Chinese nationals are coming into the United States. 60 Minutes, even a liberal news magazine like 60 Minutes did a story on it the other night. Take a listen. Chinese migrants. Yes, you heard that right. Chinese. We saw large groups, including many from the middle class, come through a four-foot gap at the end of a border fence 60 miles east of San Diego. Now, they just simply walk through. There's a gap in the fence. Is the Joe Biden Department of Homeland Security going to close that fence? No. Lately, they've gotten into the business of cutting fences they have in Texas. But the, the audacity of somebody like Joe Biden saying, this isn't my problem, this is because of Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends, as you heard in the soundbite, it is not. Donald Trump had available to him about the same resources that Joe Biden has today. Donald Trump brought about the lowest level of illegal crossing into America in modern American history. That's true. And he did it with nothing extra from the U.S. Congress. Joe Biden comes in with the same tools available to him, and he manages to bring about not the lowest level, as Trump did, or an even lower level. He brings about literally the highest level of illegal entry to the United States, and he signs 94 executive actions on dismantling border security in his first 100 days in office, and he says, the problem isn't me. The problem is Donald Trump and his MAGA friends. Let's go to a naysayer, John. Hey, John, we love naysayers on this program. Welcome. And uh, what do you and I disagree about today that makes you a naysayer? Well, it's just about every day, Lars. This is John, the electrician. Been a while, but uh, I just find it interesting that uh, someone like yourself that um, cheerled a full-scale trillion-dollar, two hundred and fifty thousand American troops into the into Iraq, 
now characterizes Russia's full-scale massive invasion into Ukraine as a border dispute is just disgusting. These Those guys are defending their borders. You talk about defending our border, Lars. I think that Ukraine should expel the illegal aliens that have entered their country. Okay, and, and, and bully for them if they do it. But you still haven't answered the question that I've been posing literally now, John, for almost two years. And the question very simply is, what is the American national security interest in sending tens of billions? For you. Go ahead, I to answer the question you. then. What one big uh, advantage that we have with with supporting Ukraine, which is a free country, ha! they're separate from corrupt the, country. From, they are they are separate from the Soviet Union and from Russia. They're their own country. We are degrading Russia's military. Russia is not our friend. Un- unfortunately, I, I wouldn't say they are. are. Nor is well, China, and they're in my cahoots. My you is, is how long before you do a fawning, softball interview of Vladimir Putin like your buddy Tucker? How long before that? Well, hold on a second, John. I don't know that I'd call. I haven't actually watched all of Tucker's interview with Putin. It began to air last night. But why would you call it a fawning, softball interview uh, would you have? Did you have the same description two years ago when NBC News interviewed Putin? Because apparently it's okay it if NBC News. Hold on, now I'm going to finish, John. Now I'm going to finish. When NBC News interviews Putin, did you come out, John, and say why those people they're supporting Vladimir Putin? So, in other words, it's only bad when Carlson does an interview with Putin, but not bad if NBC News does it. I don't. I. I can't disagree with you on that. But, Lars, the, the, let's go back to my first point, that you you supported and cheer-led a full-scale, massive... We're still... At the time, we thought there was a, an American national security interest. Turns out we yeah. relied to. I, I would ask you again, but instead of ancient history, tell me what is the American That's national security Lars, interest? We have, we have soldiers still dying today to suicide, from their time. No, but John, you're not answering the question. Here's how you could degrade Putin right now. Drill for American oil, deliver American natural gas to Western Europe. That would undercut Putin. Instead, what Joe Biden has done is actions that jacked up the value of oil, the price, and that benefited Putin. He's laughing all the way to the bank. John, thanks for the call. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.